That's What She Said with Sarah Spain is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. We're approaching week 10 in the NFL, and the best place for insight, analysis, and wit is none other than the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina will be joined by ESPN's Seth Walder, an analytics darling. You can find the Mina Kimes Show wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. So this week's pod felt especially timely after last week, which I definitely count as among the most stressful of my life. The stress leading up to voting, the final push for the candidates, the endless stream of text messages and campaign asks, which led up to the very long, drawn-out results. 24-7 anxiety from start to finish until it was eventually called a full four days later. And what the next 70 or so days uh, are going to look like is a mystery. Will President Trump use his final days as an opportunity to push through legislature, to pardon people or himself, or otherwise make last-minute efforts? How is the transition to Biden's administration going to go? What is that administration going to look like? Add to that, of course, the COVID numbers and the holidays that we might spend away from family and We're in for a tough stretch, I think, Uh, but we need to stay hopeful and prepared. We need to ask for help when necessary and give ourselves the tools to work with to fight anxiety and depression and mental health issues. So at the ESPNW Summit last month, I was lucky enough to have a panel with three fantastic athletes who have publicly talked about their own mental health battles and how they fight them. And I think you can learn a lot from them. Here's my conversation with NBA player DeMar DeRozan, Olympic figure skater Gracie Gold and pro runner Molly Seidel. Let their wisdom help you and inspire you and hopefully uh, take you through the next couple months. That's what she said. As I welcome on the next three people, I just want to reiterate uh, how thankful we are that they're here to share their stories and their bravery. I saw DeMar DeRozan posted on Twitter that he was going to be in this panel today. And one of the first comments was someone saying, you don't realize how much good you're doing. And I think that's something to be remembered throughout this conversation. There's a great Mr. Rogers quote, anything that's human is mentionable and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. So these three superstar, powerful people leading a path and creating a a place for others to be themselves and to have permission to talk about their own mental health is uh, beyond all of their accomplishments on the field, on the racetrack, and on the court, So um, and on the ice. Welcome to you three. So great to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you Um, for having me. Yeah, I want you guys to introduce yourselves, which is my favorite thing to do in a panel, uh, because I love to hear uh, people brag on their own greatness. And also because I'm going to make sure to to comment if you leave out any of the good stuff tomorrow. Let's start with with you. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Don't usually uh, ladies go first. You want me to go first? that wow okay let's i love that we've got a man at the summit and he is leading with manners so let's start with gracie then on the other end hi um it's so wonderful to be here um and i'm so excited to be on this panel this other wonderful woman and man a gentleman thank you for letting us Mm -hmm. go first i guess yeah so uh gracie obviously uh uh, olympic medalist figure skater two-time national champion um and uh, one of the faces of figure skating in the U.S. for years, uh, a superstar. I'm so happy that you're here. Molly, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Molly Seidel. Um, I'm a professional runner for Saucony, 
and uh, as recently just qualified for my first Olympic team and uh, excited to be here to talk with these guys. Um, really pumped. I love the humility. Very first marathon ever she qualifies for the Olympic team. And then you just ran your second marathon ever and the ninth fastest American woman ever in just your second try. Unbelievable and a, a, almost unprecedented for individual national championships at Notre Dame. I love how you're rocking the hat, making sure everybody <laughs> knows who you rep. <laughs> uh, Damar, how about you? I'm Damar DeRozan. I play for the San Antonio Spurs. Um, some would say I'm all right in basketball. You know, um, <laughs> um, you know, I'm just I'm just happy to be here, be able to share my story, and definitely listen to these ladies and have read all their stories. Has been so inspirational to me. So you know, um, I'm really I'm really a fan sitting in here. You know, being a part of this right now. Yeah, four-time All-Star and Olympic gold medalist. I would say people would definitely say you're pretty all right at basketball. Not too bad. Um, let's talk about why we're all here. This, this mental health conversation, I'm so grateful, has been um, something over the last couple years that we've talked about so much more publicly and especially in the sports world. And Damar, I remember very notably when you posted on social media about struggles with depression and sort of came to the forefront with it. But before you were willing to go public and talk about it, do you remember when you were first able to sort of put a name to and understand the mental health challenges you were facing? Uh, no, it took a while. You know, it wasn't until I was over, older um, to I gained a, gained a knowledge and understanding. Um, a lot of my ways came from uh, a lot of dark times in my life that I kind of swept under the rug that I never paid attention to or even cared to even address. You know, at times I used to wonder why I was so unhappy, why I was so frustrated, why I was mad at the world when it was no one else's fault. You know, it was just a lot of things that I, I, I kind of suppressed by playing sports and, and putting my all into sports. And, you know, it kind of led me down the road to not never address a lot of personal issues that, that I was going through, you know, and it wasn't until when I hit a wall and I really, really had to reevaluate myself in a different light to understand what I was really, really was going through. Yeah. Molly, was there a moment for you when you could sort of identify it? Um, no, I think I've known for, for a long time, um, kind of what it was or that I dealt with things that maybe other people weren't dealing with. Um, when I was younger, I really struggled with a lot of obsessive compulsive behaviors um, and anxiety. And my, my family helped me manage it pretty well. Um, but yeah, I, I almost kind of fell into running and, and doing the sport that I do because it was a really good way of kind of just making my brain work correctly. I felt like sometimes the only the only time my brain really fit inside my body was when I was running. Um, and I think I'm really lucky in that I found a, a sport that really supports my mental health. Um, but yeah, I've, it's something that I was lucky enough when I was younger to learn kind of what I had and be diagnosed um, with OCD and then be able to work with therapists since then. Yeah, it's fascinating how sometimes Sports can be this great escape, and sometimes it can actually help us hide from really digging into the things that, that we need to figure out. Uh, Gracie, how about you? Well, when I probably finally accepted, like, my diagnosis, you know, that I was just severely depressed, um, and then with my disordered eating was probably when I checked into treatment, and my therapist was like, we, we have some issues to work through here. And I was like, no, I'm just quirky. Like, 
I'm just different. Mm -hmm. Like I just have some strange behaviors and obviously being in a sport like figure skating, disordered eating almost goes with the territory because you are judged on not just what you do, but how you look while you're doing it. Like if anyone pictures a figure skater in their head, there's a certain aesthetic to it that just goes along with it. But it took a while for me to accept the severity of it. And yeah, just kept kind of brushing it under the rug, just dove more and more into skating, more and more into training, because that's something that always made me feel better. But it ended up in kind of a burnout situation where, yeah, yeah, I'd brushed so many things under the rug for so long that they piled up. Do you think it was a lack of knowledge or understanding, or do you think it was more a desire to not acknowledge the truth that kept you from really saying this is this out loud and and from trying to pin it as sort of being quirky instead of something diagnosable? That's a great question. I think it's both. I ran into what I call toxic positivity a lot where Mm. it's the no like everything's fine it's all gonna be okay no that's not real like this is what is in a way that I think a lot of times it came from a good place but in reality it just kind of added to the sense of I mean it invalidated what I kind of felt was going on because at one point even I was like oh this seems bad but everyone around me was like no it's fine or even worse, when any kind of mental illness manifests differently than advertised. So like everyone understands depression, if it's after a really severe trauma, if it's crying, if it's things like that, but if it's bouts of irritability, angry outbursts, it it almost looks like you're just being lazy when in fact it just Mm. feels like the world is crushing you and like that's why you can't get out of bed and do anything. So, I kind of ran into some issues there. And of course it really hit its peak kind of going into the 2018 Olympic season. So I think everyone just kind of wanted it to be okay. When in fact it really hadn't been okay for a long time. Yeah, the timing of your sport and participating at the biggest and highest level only every four years means that people might be wanting to encourage you to push through something that needs to actually be addressed. Can you talk about sort of that low moment for you? Um, I think one of the quotes you said about it was sort of everything in your life lit on fire at once. Yeah, um, (laughs) that's kind of, I guess, how I felt about it is I just looked around and I was like, what's good? nothing was um I was living in Detroit and like I covered all the mirrors because I didn't want to look at myself I was out of shape and not just for my sport is that bad news but I didn't like how I looked and how I felt um I wasn't leaving my apartment really and it was only to kind of show face at the rink if I made it into the rink that day I was yeah, I was a shut-in. I didn't talk to people, and if I did, I don't think it was a very pleasant interaction for them. And yeah, it just was kind of a dumpster fire. It was, yeah, like I said, just brushing all those things under the rug for so many years, and they just accumulated. And by the time I kind of knew what was going on, I had a way bigger pile of stuff to deal with than I thought. Yeah. Molly, how about you? Was there a low point that you remember? 
Um, yeah, I would say it probably manifested right at the end of college, um, going into the 2016 Olympic trials. Um, that was kind of my rock bottom moment and kind of to back up Gracie, um, on what she's saying, just being in a sport that so heavily promotes a certain body type, specifically a very thin, very, the code word in running is like fit. You look so fit. And for me, that was when I was at my absolute bottom weight, people just kept telling me, you look so fit. You look so ready to run fast. And it's this messaging that you're getting back constantly. And you're like, what I'm doing is right. Even though uh, my family and the people who were really close to me and my closest friends are like, you're not healthy. Um, my low point was at the 2016 trials when one of my best friends sat me down on a bed and just basically told me, you look like you're dying. You're not healthy. You need to get help. And that was when I realized like, okay, like I, I can't do this anymore. I've gone off the deep end. Um, and that was my impetus to go into eating disorder treatment. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's really hard when you're hearing so many different things from so many places. And I think it takes a really strong support network. At least it did for me. Um, it wasn't something that I would have ever going to be able to get out of on my own. I needed the, my friends and family around me to to help me kind of see see how far I'd gone and to help me come back from it. That's what she said. There's such an incredible fine line in both figure skating and, and racing between the optimal weight and strength and all of that to perform, but still being fueled enough to be a top level athlete. And to your point, yeah, so much of that messaging from people can be well-intentioned, but actually be reinforcing uh, negative behaviors and, and bad behaviors. Damar, in, in basketball, very different, right? Of course you have to be fit and of course you have to be in shape, but it's this focus on toughness, right? And so especially as a black man in a sport like the NBA, how difficult was it for you at that low point to acknowledge and accept um, that you wanted, you know, help? It was, it's, it's definitely tough, you know, just like my, Molly and Gracie said, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you have a streak of you have a, a week of great games um, and you being praised. Everybody's saying something good to you, how you scored this many points, how you won a game, how you hit this tough shot. And a lot of times, you know, for me, that two and a half hours is, is my escape for, from reality. But as soon as you walk away from it, you know, every positive thing that you hear kind of, it kind of hurts because you're really suffering from something that you feel like you can't say out loud. You don't want to express to nobody. Uh, you don't want to seem like you're making some type of excuse. You find any reason not to say something, you know, but you hear so many positive things and they can even go to the other way. You know, when you're having a bad week of, of playing, going to work and you're getting um, looked at and, and, and not looked at as a human, but looked at as a basketball player. And it kind of shelters you even more because it's like now I really can't say nothing. So it's tough. You know, it, it was extremely tough. And it took it took a lot out of me to build up that confidence within myself of understanding, like, you know, before all this, I'm a man, you know, and I know the obstacles and everything that I've been through as a person in my life that got me to this point. I should not let my truth or what I feel you know, um, discredit me when it comes to playing basketball. And a lot of guys struggle with that, um, get in a place of not want to say nothing because, you know, this is just, we're a man. We're not supposed to say nothing. You know, this shows 
weakness, vulnerability. Um, I'm not going to say nothing. I'm going to just suffer in silence while I get all this attention or while I get all this criticism. And it kind of puts you just in a deeper and darker place that at times it's even harder to get out of. But um, I've learned um, being able to speak about it kind of lifts more than weight off your shoulders, off your spirit, off your heart to be able to keep pushing even more. Yeah, we talk so much, especially in our ESPNW spaces, about allowing girls to be whatever they dream of and reinforcing the idea that the stereotypes applied to women and girls don't matter. But we don't do that as much with boys. We still are really restrictive of them expressing their feelings, talking about things that when they need help. And so when you offer that up, uh, you really you know, pave the way for other men uh, to, to speak about it. Do you remember what it felt like when you decided that you wanted to go public? And, and how did you decide? Um, honestly, I, it was, it was, it was my own selfish, impulsive reaction that I took to Twitter one day. And I, 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 if I sit up here and say, you know, I plan on doing this, this was going to help. I'd be lying. It was just one of those moments where I just, I just hit a wall and I, I, I went to Twitter and yeah. I woke up the next day to a whole bunch of mess that I didn't expect to have. But from there, you know, I just told myself, well, this is what I'm dealing with. You know, I just from then ever since then, I just decided to speak my truth, speak my feelings, speak what I've been through and to see the, the, the outpour of positivity from people of me giving a helping hand in a moment where I had no clue that I was going to be able to help so many people. It made me feel even better. It made me kind of upset at myself like damn why why i could have been said something if if this was the case because this is my true feelings but you know i never was looking for for no attention i kind of just hit my wall i kind of hit, hit my lowest point for screaming out um for help in silence and i finally screamed out to twitter and it turned out to be a a, a positive reaction and i'm glad i did it yeah, this quote from you is uh, remarkable. It took me to be 27 years old when I shared my story to accept being okay with being vulnerable. It gave me a sense of confidence and empowerment that I never thought would be there. It's remarkable, right? At this moment of most vulnerability, it actually turns you into more powerful, more confident, more sure of yourself because you're able to speak openly about what you're going through. That's such a lesson to other people too who are, who are considering whether they should ask for help and, and be honest and that freedom of finally of, of letting it all out. Um, Molly, I know when you decided to go public and talk about some of your challenges, you were concerned you'd get pigeonholed. All the stories would then be about the runner who has OCD or disordered eating. Can you take me through some of what you were feeling as you decided to go public? Yeah, I think originally it wasn't any sort of long thought out thing of going public. It was just me going on a friend's podcast and um, she had um, She'd actually been someone who was very close to me, helping me through a lot of really difficult times. And we kind of just got talking and I found kind of in the moment that I was finally ready to talk about it. Um, and afterwards it was kind of like this uh, little bit of a flood of things. And then especially after making the Olympic team, then people were really fascinated because I think it's definitely not necessarily the norm in, in running to find someone who struggles with eating disorder um, and then comes back. Um, it's highly prevalent in the sport, but I think I'm kind of an exception to the rule on that one. So I, I hope at the very least that my story can maybe help people who are struggling and, and going through it and know like, okay, if you, if you can get this under control, you can come back. This doesn't have to be a death sentence for your career. 
Um, but yeah, truthfully, I still kind of struggle with that. I think a lot of people um, just want to just want to classify it as one story or classify it as okay, your your story is done now. You've overcome it. Um, you never have to deal with this again. Happy ending, tie a bow on it, and and it's never mm-hmm. going to be like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's just it's little by little changing perceptions about this. And I'm sure Gracie can speak to it as well. Um, eating disorders are incredibly insidious. They can come back in many ways and many of us will deal with it for the rest of our lives. It's mostly how do you manage it? How do you live with it? How do you move forward um, with the techniques that you've developed to be able to work with it? Gracie, I thought it was so fascinating to hear, uh, especially when you were coming up, people would call you Grace Kelly, the Grace Kelly of figure skating because of your beauty and your poise and the name, of course. You had no connection to Grace Kelly. You're way too young to really have a connection to Grace Kelly. But you heard it so many times that you thought to yourself, I like this idea. I like the idea of representing this thing. And that probably stood in your way a lot, the, the idea of who you wanted to be versus who you, who you were and, and expressing your true self. Did that come into play when you decided to talk about this? So when I, well, when I first decided to talk about it, it was more that I kind of needed to explain what I, because I, when I went into the like treatment facility, you know, I dipped off the face of the earth for 45 days and then a little bit after I just popped up in Arizona to coach and I kind of and just withdrew from a bunch of events and the whole skating world was like what is going on here so I just just to kind of explain like hey um you know went to a treatment facility for all of these issues but it did seem off brands because yes I was born with a stage name um Gracie Gold yeah Yeah. the Olympic figure skater it's just that's what that is and yeah Grace Kelly was from one of my coaches and that was kind of the aesthetic and the vibe that I don't like I never came up with that that just kind of got stuck on me I was like okay it was a compliment of course and I liked it better than like the Barbie doll image Mm -hmm. which but yeah, I aesthetically really fit kind of like the traditional sport of skating. But as a human and as a person, I'm really far off from that. So, and I was a little bit worried about being pigeonholed. Um, as Molly said, like being like that girl. Right. But it was refreshing, I guess, to actually say what I wanted to, to speak my mind, to be vulnerable and not just kind of put up that facade of, hi, like I'm Gracie and everything is great today. It was nice to kind of be able to take that off and just be me. I read this remarkable exchange uh, in 2017 when things were sort of low, you were still competing. You were in Colorado Springs and the judges, some of them couldn't hold back tears while delivering critiques for you because um, you didn't seem like the skater that they had come to know and they they could tell something, something was wrong, but in, in response to the judges and some of what they had to say, you said, can anybody see the cry for help that is my existence right now? And within a month, you had entered that inpatient program. That's such an unbelievable vocalization in the moment of this thing that you'd clearly been holding in. Um, what happened that day? Um, so we were at, uh, it's called Champs Camp, but it's our kind of summer team evaluations before we go international. 
and I showed up and you want to be pretty on point for champs camp, you know, because you are competing internationally in a month or two. So I showed up in like extra large hoodie, sweatpants. Um, I wasn't jumping at that point and I was wildly out of shape. Um, and it, yeah, very much looked like I hadn't been skating, which I had not been. And during the judges critique, the, the tears didn't feel real to me. And they just felt, what really sent me off the edge was they were like, if you lost weight, you know, we could get this back on track. Mm. And I was like, oh, here we go again. Like, if we just lose weight, it'll all be fine, right? I was so sick of hearing that. And in fact, there were so many other things going on. Like, they just were lecturing me about being untrained and being out of shape. And no one stopped to ask. Because I was always a hard okay? worker. Yeah. Yeah. No one stopped to ask why, what is preventing you from training? What is, is there something else going on that's going on that's the root cause about why we're here? And so um, I did get a little profane and I did mm -hmm. let them know my thoughts, which was off brands because um, normally... I would just hold my tongue and be like nice and polite. Um, again, in a sport like skating, we are judged. So it's not recommended to go off on the people judging you uh, right. with profanity. But yeah, I just, I was so sick of no one seeing me. Right. Like of yeah. who I was as a person. And as you said, um, Damar, like, yeah, just seeing a basketball player and not a person. I just felt like they saw the figure skater, just like a Barbie doll. And if I didn't fit the mold that they wanted for me, it was behavioral. It wasn't, it was like mental health never crossed anyone's mind. And what a remarkable failure that is in sports and has been for such a long time to look at people who are at the very best at what they do and have worked so hard to get there and then accuse them of laziness or not caring or not wanting it. And so often that's what we do instead of trying to understand and have conversations about what might be at the root of their changed behaviors or the way that they're handling themselves. Um, Molly, what is the response in your sport? And, and do you feel like it's in a good place to receive conversations about this stuff? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely become much more of a point of conversation within the sport of running. Um, uh, a lot of women that I really look up to have spoken out about this. Over the last couple of years, Lauren Fleshman is actually a, um, a huge inspiration for me as an athlete personally. And she's written a lot about how her own experience of feeling like she had to change her body um, in this sport um, and that. I think it's becoming something that people are aware of. People are able to talk about more and more runners are telling their stories about struggling with eating disorders. But unfortunately, I believe it is still a huge problem, especially in the collegiate system of running. So I think it's going to have to just be something that uh, systematically we work to change over years, maybe getting more female coaches um, into collegiate running, just opening dialogues about this kind of stuff because it's nothing's going to change if we don't actively work to make it change. That's what she said. Bringing a light to all this is so important. And you mentioned earlier, a lot of people think when you talk about it, oh, I'm so glad that you, you fixed it. 
and the problem is over. But it's an ongoing process of recovery. It's a journey. And for you, Molly, interestingly, when you switched to marathon um, in college, you were dominant at, at, at 10,000 and you decided to try marathon. You have incredible success from the start, but you have to relearn what it means to fuel your body for 26 miles plus versus shorter distances. How has that been for you? Because that's a whole different set of tools that you need to understand how much you have to put in to get out the results that you want. Yeah, the marathon feeling is something that I still truthfully um, struggle with, especially in this buildup for London. We, we really worked to nail it down because Atlanta, uh, leading into the Olympic trials, which was my first marathon, I really had no idea what to expect. And you just, you bump your training up suddenly instead of running 80 miles a week, you're running 120 and the fueling requirements for your body. Like there were certain days where I'm eating three to 4,000 calories a day. And just for someone who's been through eating disorder treatment, that can already be fairly triggering. Um, And then in addition to that, there's, you literally have to fuel during the marathon. Um, you're taking in carbohydrates while you run. So it really was kind of this paradigm shift of how I had approached my running and my fueling in college. I think there was always this approach in college. Of, I can't eat too much because I, the worst thing in the world is to have too many calories. Um, whereas now my approach is more, the worst thing is to have too few calories, to not have enough fuel because you will literally bonk in the marathon. You will literally not be able to finish. Um, so it's it's taken work. It's continued work with my therapist. My coach um, has been right along with me this whole thing. I'm very open with him about my struggles. He knows that he works with me um, with it. And yeah, I think it's kind of going back to just having that support system and being able to learn from people around me and women who are more experienced giving me advice. So yeah, it's it's a learning process, but I feel like London, this past marathon I just did um, three weeks ago, is a really good step on the way as I prepare for the Olympics. Um, get one more in, learn a little bit more, finally learn how to fuel during a marathon. Well, not to mention personal best, you know, cutting your time in just your second marathon. So fantastic. So impressive. Uh, Damar, you told the SBN back when you went uh, public and you participated in a PSA for the NBA and you were a part of their developing efforts to be more aware and supportive of mental health uh, issues. You told the SPN, people say, what are you depressed about? You could buy anything you want. I wish everyone in the world was rich so they could realize money isn't everything. That comes up every time this comes up, whether that's a, an athlete who gets injured, he'll be fine, he's rich. An athlete who doesn't achieve the thing they were most working towards, oh, he'll be fine, he's rich. Tell me about what you want people to understand about mental health. It's a serious matter. You know, it's, it's one of those things that it, it does not discriminate on anyone. And it's a, it's a thing that, that ruins a lot of people that don't address it. You know, um, it's, it's a crazy thing. When, even when I hear people say that, you know, you just dehumanizing a person already by even saying that. By thinking because somebody has this, that, or a third, you know, that they're, they're fine, you know, um, and that's, that's not right. You know, I, and I think that's why it's such an important topic to get people to understand that a lot of times the ones who even say stuff like that could be suffering from so much as well that they, they don't know, or they're afraid to address. Um, so for me, it's just, it's just one of those things to where like, we gotta, we, we gotta treat it like it's like everything else how we treat our, our health, the way we eat, the way we approach life. Um, that's how important mental health is, you know, and they get pushed under a rug so much because people 
don't want to be vulnerable. People don't want to feel like they're less of a person. Um, and having these conversations show people how empowering it really is when you speak your story. You know, um, for me, I get more excited when I, when I'm able to see players in any sports, in any walk of life, share their story. You know, it just shows me how remarkable of a person, um, there are in us as human beings walking on this earth, um, the things that we we're capable to do on a daily basis with the things we go through, with the things we are faced with every single day. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that we have to speak about because we live in a tough world. You know, you turn on the TV, you see so much negativity, you see so much stuff that goes on every single day that plays on people's mind unconsciously. That's depressing. And if you don't address it or understand it, 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 it will play on you and you'll end up in, in that same hole with everybody else, you know, and I think the more people that have conversation like this, you will get more of a positive feeling and more caring for the person that's sitting next to you. You know, I, I don't care where I go. I look at every, every single person, the exact same. I don't care. I speak with everybody the exact same with, with nothing but respect and try to give offers positivity because you don't know what that person go to. You know, for me, yeah. I grew up, I, I grew up in, you know, Compton, California. And, you know, it would be days I go to school and you, you could be laughing with a friend that sit right, right next to you. And you come to school the next day and you hear a story about how, you know, he was killed, you know, and you always be like, I I wish I would have talked to him or I wish I would have said something to help him out, you know, and, and, and living with a lot of those regrets, um, sucks and it plays on you. So, I always try to treat everybody with some type of respect and give them some type of inspiration and do the same to somebody else when, when they go somewhere. So, you know, just you never know what continue people are going through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you just, you, yeah. people look at it like it's such a cliche word, but it's, it's, it's real. It's a, that's the realest saying that I could think of. You never know what someone is going through because we are so great at telling white lies every single day. You know, I always tell people we'll walk by somebody and say, you know, they ask us how we doing or we ask them how they doing. And first thing we say, I'm great. Mm-hmm. I'm good. You know, we, yeah. we and, and we do it unconsciously to where we're so trained to, to keep whatever we filling in that day. in because we may not want to be a burden that person or we may not want to speak on it when speaking about it kind of gives you a relief and feel like, you know what? Let me try to help somebody else out. Let me ask them yeah. how, really how, how your day going. Let's talk about it. You know what I mean? It is. It's remarkable how much better people can feel just getting it off their chest, just talking to someone and connecting with another human being. It's been tough to be great over the last few months, especially an added challenge to all of us um, with coronavirus, with uncertainty about your sports and and jobs and everything else. Um, I want to leave by talking about some toolboxes and some kits and some tricks that we all have. And and Gracie, I'm curious over the course of this time, understanding what you're dealing with and and how to power through it and how to address it and continue on your journey. What is that toolbox look like for you? And what, what have you learned? Um, learned a lot. Um, well, one thing that's not in my toolbox is powering through it because that's one of my favorite unhealthy coping mechanisms is I just like, just run faster, just push through it, do more. Like something's not going well, do more. And especially when I was in my eating disorder, something wasn't going well, eat less, lose weight. Um, as if that would like just fix everything. Um, 
So I try to slow down for a second, take a break, just even a moment in time and just evaluate. Always, I always try to find the root cause because that's obviously how you get to it. Um, but a lot of meditation and a lot of leaning on others um, when they have the emotional capacity to be there for me. I had trouble sharing with people a lot when stuff was really bad because I just assumed that I was just all knowing and I knew that I just always had the feeling that they didn't have the capacity to handle it. Yeah. And as Dara said, like to, to burden them or to be a burden, that wasn't something that I wanted. I always had pride in being self-sufficient. So, you know, the group of people I have around me now, there's always the morning greeting of like, hey, how are you? But they always take an extra second to be like, no, how are you? Or if they notice a behavior like a couple weeks ago, I just had a series of mornings where I was super late and I showed up to the rink unprepared, um, like just kind of sloppy, a mess. And instead of giving me a lecture on time management and just showing up on the ice prepared, you know, they took a second to say, hey, is everything okay? Is there something going on in your life that's causing this? So communicating with others has been one of my biggest things because my instinct is to close the doors and just power through. So resisting that as well as, um, turns out I do love meditation. I always thought that was one of those like lame, like things that you saw on Pinterest, you know, they were like, I meditate (laughs) for 10 minutes a day, but it actually is really, really useful. Um, especially Mm. for someone like me who just wants to do more and just wants to go fast and be present and just attack everything all the time. So forcing myself to slow down and check in has been very, very Such a great tool. So, so important. We are, we're running out of time, but really quickly, Molly, I I would love to hear if you have a, a toolbox, something that you've learned. Yeah. I think just being able to be open with others and like, yeah, what Gracie said, be able to be communicative when I'm not doing okay. Um, Right at the beginning of the pandemic here in Boston, where I I live with my sister, my sister had actually gone home to Wisconsin with our parents and I was alone here and just realizing like, yeah, I'm really not okay right now. Like I can't do this alone. Um, I was starting to spiral. And so I flew back to Wisconsin so that I could be with my family. So I could be with my sister because she's someone that is really there for me and kind of holds me accountable to be mentally healthy. Um, so yeah, just realizing that's how it was when I went into eating disorder treatment. You only get through it with the support of other people. I think yeah. a lot yeah. of mental disorders kind of thrive in isolation. And so for me, it's always been, okay, I, I need the strength of others to help me help me get through this. What a great and powerful message from all three of you. And you're doing that right now, not just with the people around you and your own teams and communities and families, but everybody watching and everybody who hears what you guys share. Um, are getting the power of, of that communication, of that connection, um, of pulling them out in, into talking about it and, and getting help. Thank you guys so much for being here. We could talk so much longer. You have such great insights, but I so appreciate the time. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, nothing. I'm going to take this week off from complaining. 
I'm going to complain less. I'm going to be thankful more. And after the stresses of last week and the relief of Saturday's announcement, I'm just going to let myself enjoy a feeling of hope and a dream of potentially better times ahead. One day I am definitely going to snap, but it's not going to be a day this week. I got meditation, dog snuggles. I got Ted Lasso. I've got some long walks in some unseasonably warm November weather. And it's all going to bring down the blood pressure from last week. So I hope you guys find some peace too. I promise you I will get back to complaining next week. In fact, it's going to be a real struggle for me to spend the next six days trying not to complain. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, review. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. All the stars, all the kind words. Put your dilemma in your review and maybe I'll fix it on a future pod. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs>